an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, that's a very brief, but I hope that you will see by the time we leave this morning a very important passage for us. Very brief, but very important. Very clear, the author here is the Apostle Peter. We meet him in the scriptures, in the gospel, as Simon. Simon the fisherman, who along with his brother Andrew and his associates, perhaps his cousins, James and John, were called to leave their fishing business to follow Jesus, and he would make them to become fishers of men. Now, Simon, very common name in that time, but he was given another name by Jesus. He was called Peter, and that means a rock or a stone. And we remember Peter for his rock-like confession. You recall that one day Jesus asked his disciples, Who, whom do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, I say to you, you are Peter, a stone. And upon this rock, this huge rock, and that rock meaning the words, the confession that Peter had just given, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, on that rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. Peter was the rock. He had a rock-like faith, but that rock crumbled one day, right? When Jesus was betrayed and handed over to the authorities three times in one night, this rock crumbled. Peter cursed and swore and took an oath that he did not even know Jesus. He's Peter the rock. He crumbled. But God, through Jesus, put him back together again, right? You remember a beautiful scene when Peter thought it was all over for him as a disciple and he might as well go back to fishing. The Lord Jesus met him by the seashore and around another charcoal fire, just like the fire where he had denied him, Jesus asked him the same question three times. Peter, do you love me? And three times with a breaking heart, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, go feed my lambs. Go pastor my sheep. He restored him. And within just a few 
weeks, it was Peter who stood up and used those keys of the gospel to open the church doors to all the people gathered in Jerusalem as he proclaimed Jesus as Lord. And on that day that we call the day of the Pentecost, thousands, thousands came to faith in Christ. And then sometime later, it was Peter using those keys of the gospel who was compelled by a vision from God to go beyond his safe spot to go beyond his prejudices and his social mores and go to the house of an unclean Gentile named Cornelius and there share the message of Christ. And Peter used the keys of the gospel and he brought the first Gentiles to that saving knowledge of the Lord. The Bible tells us that Peter was in Jerusalem those early years. He was one of the pillars of the church. Then Peter went up into the area of Galatia to enter into and to rejoice in the work among the Gentiles. Paul tells us later on that Peter, along with his wife, was traveling in missionary journey. He was doing evangelism and being a part of church planting, even in the area of Greece. There's very, very strong church tradition that the last few years of his life, Peter spent in Rome. And it was from Rome that he wrote these two letters that we have in our Bibles, known as 1st and 2nd Peter. And he was there when the first persecution official persecution against Christians broke out. The maniac emperor Nero in the summer of 64 AD trying to burn down a section of the city to enlarge his palace set ablaze almost all of Rome. And looking for a scapegoat, he got word that there was a group of people known as Christians who talked about the end of the world coming in a fiery judgment. And so this was pinned on the Christians and they were horribly persecuted in that time. And we're told from church history that it's then that Peter was arrested. Also the apostle Paul. Peter was arrested taken outside of the city walls of Rome, and he was crucified. And church tradition tells us that he did not consider himself worthy to die the way his Lord has died. And so he asked his executioners to invert him on the cross, and he was crucified upside down. Now, this letter was written a few years before that outbreak of persecution. Peter is writing, he says in chapter five, verse 13, from Babylon, Babylon. Now, Babylon really didn't exist over in Iraq, but he's talking in a code word. The code word Babylon meant Rome. And so he's writing this letter from Rome And he's writing it to specific people. Notice it says in verse one, he's writing to the exiles of the dispersion. 
Now we're going to talk about the elect exiles in just a moment. But he says he's writing to those in the dispersion. The word dispersion was a word from the Jewish history that for the last several hundred years after the Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity, millions of Jewish people have been scattered away from their homeland and they were referred to as the diaspora, the dispersed ones. And so he's writing to those of the dispersion, but the word dispersion had been taken on by the Christians for their own meaning, that they, as followers of Jehovah God, were scattered around the empire, and they are the dispersed ones of the kingdom. Now, these particular Christians that he's writing to, notice where they live. They live in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That is a region where modern-day Turkey exists, an area that was incredibly evangelized in the first centuries after Jesus. And so he's writing to believers who are gathered in churches in modern-day Turkey, But you're going to see that it has a very modern message. A very modern message for God's people scattered around the world. A modern message for us because we live in a time of increasing trials. That's when these Christians lived. They were living in a time when trials for their faith were beginning to increase, increasing trials. These Christians to whom he is writing lived under perverted, egomaniac leadership. Perverted, egomaniac leadership. The empire of Rome ruled by Nero and the entire leadership anti-God, pagan, right was wrong, wrong was right, truth falling in the streets, spiritual darkness everywhere. That's where these Christians lived. They lived in a time of increasing trials. They lived under perverted and egomaniac leadership. And they lived in a culture without a moral compass. The early church lived, the early Christians lived in a world that was without moral compass. Right and wrong did not even seem to exist anymore. And yet, yet, they had reason for such incredible hope. Incredible hope. This letter of 1 Peter is not a letter for people who are thinking, how bad is it? How terrible is it? Everything's going down the tubes. The sky is falling. This is no letter for chicken little Christians. No, no. 
This is a letter filled with hope. And that's where Peter begins. He begins writing to people under increasing tribulation, writing to people who have to live under egomaniac, perverted leadership, writing to people who are living in a culture without a moral compass. And he says, you have great hope. Why? Because you're beloved. You are beloved exiles. Your beloved exiles. And that's the things I want us to think about just for a moment. He tells these people throughout this letter, You're, you are exiles. Exiles. He calls Christians exiles time and time again. What is an exile? An exile is someone who's living away from their home. Someone who is in a land that's not their homeland, who maybe has a different upbringing, background, thinking processes, living in a place that's not really home. What is an exile? An exile is a person, and as a Christian, an exile is someone who knows home is not here. Home is not here. You know, every day for the last few weeks, I've been able to watch someone very special to me living in exile at, at our home. Now, no, it's not Susan. <laughs> it's our dog, Lucy. She's 14 years old. Some of you may know that over the last several weeks, Susan and I moved. Now, we live in the same house for almost 21 years, and we moved. We didn't move far, though. We only moved two doors over. We didn't move far. Sounded like a very easy thing to do back then. <laughs> let me talk to you about it afterward, okay? But uh, let me tell you what I've seen. That little dog has come with us. But when that little dog gets loose, you know where that dog goes? On the front porch of our other house. Saddest thing you've ever seen. That dog is with us, but the dog is sensing home is not here. Home is not here. That's what exiles are. I'm here, but home is not here. And he says, not only are we exiles, but he's going to tell us over and over again, here's the reason for great hope. You are beloved. You are beloved, specially loved by God, loved by God, the father, loved by God, the spirit, loved by God, the son, loved by the triune God. And I want us to look at that this morning as we come to communion to be reminded that what communion is all about is the truth here. And I hope the truth here. We are beloved exiles. Notice he says, we are beloved exiles of the Father. Look at verses one and two. He's writing to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, elect here is directly from the 
Greek word elektos. Our word comes directly transliterated from that. And the word means to choose. Elect, election. Election is a choice. And in the New Testament sense, it is a choice by God. It means to be chosen by God. Throughout the New Testament, the bedrock of our salvation is on this incredible, incredible truth of election by God. That God has chosen us in Christ. Incredible truth. It's spread throughout the New Testament. Election is the choice of God based on what? Based on his gracious love alone. Gracious love. Not deserved love. God did not choose us because he saw that we are practically perfect people. God did not choose us because we are better than others. God did not choose us because he knew that somehow we could do more for him than anyone else. No, God's choice is based on his gracious love of us. And that's what's meant by the foreknowledge of God. You see that? <clears throat> he says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now some people have the idea when the Bible talks about God's foreknowledge that it simply means, well, God knew what a person was going to choose to do. So because God knew what a person was going to choose, then God just ratified that choice. And that is not what election teaches at all because that would be us electing ourselves. We choose ourselves and then God just ratifies our choice. No, the, the Bible says the election is based on the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? That is a personal knowing. It's not just to know facts before they happen. That's not what the word foreknowledge means. It's not that God just knew ahead of time what was going to happen and so he decided that. No, foreknowledge is personal. It has to do with a personal relationship that God entered into a personal relationship even before we were born. He set his love on us. He's, he loved us in Christ. This word to know is a word in the Old Testament. It goes to even a husband and wife's relationship that is so close and so wonderfully deep that is expressed in that physical union. Adam knew his wife Eve. This is the same idea that God in his incredible love has known his people and entered into a love with them. It's the amazing, incredibly humbling reality, folks, that before we believed, we were beloved. Before we believed, we were beloved. Someone asked the great preacher, Spurgeon, 
Do you think God chose you before you were born? He said he had to choose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after I was born. (laughs) It's based on gracious love. How humbling. I want to tell you, no human being can Search the depths of the incredible electing love of Christ. But I want to tell you what it does when a person understands the love of God in Christ before he was born. It does not give you a big head. It gives you a heart overwhelmed in humble gratitude for such a God. People who become arrogant over the issue of election only show they've never even understood it faintly at all. Beloved exiles of the Father. Then notice, beloved exiles of the Spirit. Verses one and two, elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, what does that mean? It means to be set apart. That's what to sanctify means. It means to set apart to God. It's the same word that has to do with holiness, being made holy. It doesn't mean that the the item or the person that is holy in and of himself is special. It means that the person is special because God has set aside that one to himself. And he does this by the Holy Spirit. It's the miracle of the new birth. The Bible teaches that when a person looks to Jesus in saving faith, that in that moment of time, there there is a regeneration that has occurred and that person is a new creation in Christ and belongs to God, has been set apart as his own. He has, she has been sanctified. But it's a process as well. Because what happens is as a Christian who has been born again, grows in grace, And in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christian grows in devotion to Jesus. That Christian is growing in a love of Jesus. A person who's being sanctified is a person who is growing deeper in love with Christ for his beauty and his glory. And as that Christian is growing deeper in devotion to Christ, because of that is growing in a greater distance from the world. Why are Christians to be different from the world? Why are we to be apart from the world order and system? Because we're following Jesus. And Jesus is so precious that the things that are precious to the world are not the same to us. How many of you know what I'm talking about? That what used to be important to you is not so important anymore. And the things that used to not bother you, they bother you increasingly more. What is happening? You're in exile. You're a beloved exile. You love the Lord and you long for him And here is not home for you anymore. That's the process. 
And then there is the special love of the son. Beloved of the father, beloved of the spirit. And then just notice this, beloved of the son. Elect exiles for the obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling of his blood. Now that sounds strange to us in our ears, doesn't it? Obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood, that sounds, that sounds a little obscure to us today, but certainly it's not obscure if you know the biblical background behind it and the reality of it in Christ. You see, the Bible says that when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he led them to the promised land. And because of their disobedience, they had to wander 40 years. But just before they entered into the promised land, here's what God did. He had the whole congregation of Israel assembled before him. The law of Moses was read again to them. It was a reminder that they were God's covenant people, that he had chosen them to be his people out of all the nations of the earth. And that they belonged to him and they had responsibilities now as his people. And to confirm that covenant relationship, they were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. The blood of the sacrifice was the expression of the covenant relationship God had entered into with the nation of Israel. Now, Peter is talking about the new covenant. That we have entered into the new covenant that God has made with all who trust in Jesus. That they are sprinkled by his blood. They have been brought near to God. We have entered into the family of God by the blood of the lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, right? We have been sprinkled by his blood and now we have covenant responsibility. And what are those covenant responsibilities? Simply this, obedience to Jesus. Look at what it says in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Obedience to Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be obedient to Jesus, to follow Christ, to be his disciple. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christ follower. To be a Christian is to obey Jesus. You know, when we, a couple of weeks ago, when I was on this trip with Susan and others to Greece, and we also were able to go to Turkey, to Ephesus and Patmos, a wonderful thing happened. While we were in Athens, this tall young man, probably his late 20s or so, came up and started listening to our guide as he taught. And our guide was amazing. Incredible intellect and a tender heart for Christ. And this man listened to him and followed around. And he started talking to our guide. And then the guide came to me and said, I'd like to introduce you to this man. 
he would like to follow us today. Is that okay with you? And I said, why, sure. And I introduced myself. He introduced himself. He was from Warsaw, Poland. He's archaeologist, a professor from Warsaw. He followed us that whole day, listening. He said, I'm, I'm hearing things I haven't heard before. Very interested. And then that evening, the guide came up to me and said, he'd like to go to Corinth with us tomorrow. Is that okay? <laughs> I said, sure. And so he came with us on the bus and entered in as all, all that silliness was going on as we we're having that fellowship. But he listened as our guide walked us through the, the ruins of Corinth and talked about what happened there. And then later that evening, we were back in Athens for a meal with our ministry partners over there in Athens. And before the meal started, we were outside and he was saying, you know, I, how, what is all this? I, I, I'm, it's amazing. It's such wonderful people and the joy, the happiness that you have. And, and what are you? I've been listening. I've never heard these things before. I know Roman Catholic and Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox. What are you guys? And, and I said, well, you, uh, were, you could say we're evangelicals. Have you heard the word evangelical? And he said, uh-uh. And so I'm thinking, how do I explain this? And so I said, okay, you're an archaeologist, right? He said, yes. I said, as you're an archaeologist, you have to dig down through layers, don't you? He said, yes. Layers of cities or buildings to get to what? What are you after? He said, I'm, I'm after the original. I, I, I'm after the original. And I said, exactly. I said, you know, there's been centuries of religion. Various kinds of religion in the name of Jesus. But if you dig down, you dig down, you dig down, what you find it's all about is this. Jesus, the son of God, gave his life for you. God raised him from the dead and he is Lord of all who will believe in him and he invites you to follow him the rest of your life and to know life in him and to be with him in heaven. He's inviting you to follow him as your Lord. That's the bedrock. I'd like to say that he dropped to his knees and prayed right then. He didn't, but he said, I will read more. I am very interested. I see there's something here I don't know. And so I want you to pray for him that the Lord would bring him to understand what every person in this room needs to understand. To be a Christian is not about what you know. It's not about where you're going when you die. To be a Christian is about who you are following as your master. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. That is the essence. To be loved by Jesus and to love and follow him and obey him is the abundant life.
and it makes you an exile. Because when you follow Jesus, home's not here anymore. Home's where Jesus is. And friends, what makes heaven heaven is that's where Jesus is. If Jesus weren't there, it wouldn't be heaven at all. What draws our hearts? What compels us to go on? What fills us with hope? What, even though we know we don't fit in down here, what is the joy and rejoicing of our heart that we are dearly beloved? Our lives are his and we're headed home. Home is where he is. This letter of 1 Peter is addressed to exiles. Exiles. And what we're going to do every week, Lord willing, this summer is just to have some things to ask you to think about, talk about. Think about yourself, talk about as a family, talk about in other, other groups. But here's just a few things to think about this morning. The Bible says that before we take communion, we should examine ourselves. So I'd just like to offer an exile's examination. An exile's examination. Number one, what does chosen and belonging to God mean to you? What does it mean to you? Chosen and belonging to God. I mean, it's, in, it's beyond comprehension here. But what I'm asking you, does your heart embrace that? Chosen and belonging to God. What does that mean to you? Number two, what is the evidence that you belong to him? What, what is the evidence in your life that reveals and you thank God that you see it, that you belong to him? The Bible says to make your calling and your election sure. What's the evidence in your life? Number three, how are you displaying that home is not here? How is that displayed in your life? How, how are you displaying the, the reality that you're in exile? Home is not here. What's that look like in your life? And number four, how are you attracting others to your king and country? Because that's one of the things that is so awesome about following Jesus. We get to attract others to him and others get to join us on the journey home, our king and country. Beloved exiles. You know what communion reminds us about? It reminds us that we are beloved Jesus did this for us. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. We are beloved. And you know what it also reminds us of? We're exiles. Because Jesus said, I've given you this to remember me until I come. He says, until 
we sit down together at the marriage supper in the kingdom. Until then, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we take communion, we are testifying. Home is not here. 